Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. We continue our, our track, is it a trek, our trek, our track, our trek through the gospel of Matthew. So we were in Matthew 17, 1 through 8 last week, so we move on to verses 9 through 13 this week. Uh, Matthew 17, verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Father, we pray that you would help us to hear from you this morning, that we would hear from your word. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we might not be distracted, Lord, by the things that happened this morning or this week or the things we're looking forward to doing this afternoon, but we would focus in on what you are speaking to your church this this time. We ask, Holy Spirit, you would teach us, that you would humble us, that you would convict us of sin, that you would show us the beauty of Christ, that you would help us know how much you love us. Lord, that we would even be amazed at your love that you brought us here this morning, that you put us in a church where your word is read and preached. Lord, what what love you've shown us. You've given us clothes to wear. You didn't rain down fire and sulfur on Philadelphia like Sodom and Gomorrah, which we certainly deserve. You preserved this building last night. And Lord, you've given us the health to be here when we don't deserve it. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and grace. Thank you that we could hear one more sermon about the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray we would listen as if it might be our last and I might preach as if it might be the last sermon I ever preach, for it could be true. And so save and heal and glorify your name, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last week, we saw Jesus' transfiguration. Transfiguration is a big word that simply means change, uh, transformation, and yet we we thought about how... uh, Uh, Jesus was changed from our perspective in the sense that his veil was lifted up. What, What he is in himself did not change, but God simply lifted up the veil to show us the the beauty and glory of Jesus that that was hidden in his humiliation. And we were reminded in multiple ways that Jesus is God. At least five ways we were reminded that Jesus is God. Number one, as Jesus revealed himself, excuse me, as God revealed himself to Moses and Elijah on a high mountain on Mount Sinai, so Jesus revealed himself in a special way on the high mountain of transfiguration. Nothing was added to Jesus, but God pulled back the veil to show us Jesus' glory. 
Secondly, as God is described as shining like the sun, so Jesus shone like the sun on the Mount of Transfiguration. Third, as God is clothed with splendor and majesty, covering himself with light as a cloak, so Jesus was clothed with splendor and majesty, and his clothes became as white as light on the Mount of Transfiguration. Four, as God met with Moses and calls Moses' face to shine with a reflected glory, so Jesus, the God-man, met with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, but Jesus' face shone with Jesus' own glory. There was no reflection needed. His glory comes from himself. And fifth, Jesus is declared by God, his Father, to be his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. He's God's Son. He's the center's Savior. He's a centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's august. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. As S.M. Lockridge would say, Jesus shares God's divine nature. Hebrews 1, 2 through 3. In these last days, he has spoken through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And we also thought about last week how in, in, in God the Father declaring his love for his Son uh, beloved, you who are in Christ, God says the same of you. Just as God said to his son, this is my beloved son, in him I'm well pleased, you are in Christ, and God says to you, you are my beloved Only Baptist Church, and in you I am well pleased. God is well pleased with you. God loves you. God has set his His desire upon you. The Bible says you are the apple of God's eye, that you are his special treasure. And we desire to behold our God and become more like him. And it's by beholding Christ, by looking to Christ, by meditating upon Christ, by thinking of Christ, by praying to Christ, by spending time communing with with Jesus as a lover as a friend, as a husband, as our all in all, by communing with him and thinking of him and meditating upon him, uh, we become more like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. And today we come with Jesus down off the mountain to see him again, to look at him again, to become more like him as we, we look to him as in, in sermons, look to him in prayer, look to him in our own Bible reading, look to him in, in our own personal worship, in corporate worship. We, we, we come to him again and we see him coming down off the mountain and we see him discussing with his disciples about Elijah and John the Baptist. And again, Jesus tells his disciples what is going to happen to him that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die, and that he's going to rise again. Jesus Christ is the greatest light because he's the God-man and because he endured the greatest darkness on that cross that we might be in the light. And so let's look to him again. Let's look to this light again and behold him and be transformed by him as we look to his words and his word. Point number one Jesus commands his disciples to be silent about his transfiguration. Jesus commands his disciples to be silent about his transfiguration. Look at uh, uh, Matthew 17, verse 9. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Remember, Son of Man is is Jesus' favorite way to talk about Himself. Son of Man veils who He is in the sense that Son of Man, He's a He's a human being, He's a man, and but Son of Man also reveals in the sense that it points us back to that that divine figure in in Daniel, the Son of Man who has an everlasting kingdom whose dominion will never end. And so Jesus tells His disciples to be quiet. Don't tell what you've seen. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine how badly the disciples would have wanted to to tell the others what they'd just seen? You see the transfiguration. You see Jesus' glory. You see Moses and Elijah. And you come down the mountain and you can't wait to post it. To tweet it. To spread the news. Get get a selfie with Moses. (laughs) I mean, think about it in today's kind of lens, what people would want to do if they saw these things. You you want to tell everybody, you know what we just saw? And Jesus says, be quiet. Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Why, Why be silent? Why the silence? We've seen this before. We've seen Jesus command silence concerning certain truths about him before in the Gospels. James Edwards, a, a, a helpful commentator, comments, the cross and resurrection are the only vantage point or perspective from which Jesus' life and ministry can be understood according to their divine purpose. Until the cross and resurrection, all other knowledge of Jesus is inadequate. Jesus wants to be understood for who he really is and not false beliefs about who he is, and they're not going to get it until they get the cross and the resurrection. They're not going to get who Jesus really is until they get the cross and the resurrection. And so Jesus commands silence. He doesn't want to be misunderstood to be some great military leader who's going to take over by by overcoming the, the physical enemies of, of Rome at that time. Now, he is going to he is going to come back as a great military leader who's going to overcome all physical enemies. He is going to come that way, just not this time. You read Revelation 19, he's coming back with a big old sword. He's coming back on a war horse with fire in his eyes and a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and he's going to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and the blood will rise up to the bridles, uh, ho- uh, bridle of the horse for like 184 miles. It's going to be ugly for his enemies. He is going to crush his enemies when he comes back. All the more reason to trust him now. All the more reason to make terms of peace with this war general now because he ain't coming back happy. He's going to come back happy to be with us, but he is going to destroy like you've never seen destruction. You think World War I and World War II and the Civil War and all these wars? No. (laughs) Tsunamis that kill 100,000 people? No. Jesus is coming back like you've never seen, and he's going to destroy every enemy, but not now. Now's the time of peace. He's come for, for peace and salvation. And so they don't, they don't get this. They, they think he's coming back like that in Revelation 19 not, it, here. <laughs> no. 
That's why the, the, the disciples said things. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven now? The fire from heaven's coming, but not yet. Not yet. And so Jesus commands silence because they don't get it. They don't get what he's coming to do yet. Notice that the disciples, they never got Jesus' death and resurrection before he did actually die and rise. Even though he told them time after time, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise, they never got it. I mean, they were surprised when he died. It shows they didn't get it. He told you what was going to happen. They didn't get it. Again, beloved, this should make us desperate. Holy Spirit, please reveal your truth to me. Because I'm not going to get I'm going to be like them unless you... This is why we pray before we read the Bible. This is why we pray before we, we preach. God, we need you to help us or we will be as blind as the disciples when you plainly told them what would happen. Sometimes people think, I wish God would just make things clear in the Bible. It would just be so clear. And he would say, you wouldn't get it if it was clear. <laughs> it is clear enough. It is clear enough. And by the Holy Spirit help we can get what we need to get and understand notice they they never got it but beloved this is also a reminder of God's grace to them and to us again James Edwards comments the disciples are not in fellowship with Jesus because of their perfect knowledge virtue or abilities they're in fellowship solely because of Jesus sovereign call and they remain in fellowship only because of his faithfulness to them Their discipleship does not depend on their perfect knowledge and understanding, but simply on continuing to follow where Jesus leads. Beloved, are there things that you don't understand about God's Word today? Are there things you don't understand about Jesus? Are there things you don't understand about how things are going in your life and, and, and how God is working? That's okay. You may not always know and understand everything you need to know and understand about Jesus. Or understand everything you need to understand about Jesus. But, but keep following Him. Keep following Jesus. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep obeying Jesus. Keep pursuing growth in your knowledge and understanding of Jesus. He will never lead you astray. And you can always trust Him. That He'll, he'll lead you where you need to go for your good and for His glory. So it's okay not to always understand everything or not to always know everything. Keep following Christ. Keep trusting Christ. Keep pursuing growth in the knowledge and understanding of Jesus. And He will take you safely home. Well, praise God that Jesus gives an expiration date on their silence. Look at verse 9 again. Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Tell no one until. <laughs> I always like to point this out when we come to Jesus' command of silence because it, it always reminds me that we need to go and tell now. <laughs> we go and tell now. We don't, we're not silent anymore about what Jesus has done. We're not silent anymore about the transfiguration and that He's the God-man, that He died and rose again. We're not silent now. We go and tell everybody now. And beloved, I, w- I would encourage you, especially during this season, God has providentially worked uh, through the church calendar. Whether you agree with the church calendar or not, whether you think it's paganism, whether you think it's idolatry, whatever you think about it, you can't deny God has providentially worked that Easter and Christmas happen. Because God's sovereign. You can't deny that. 
And we as Christians ought to... Sometimes we're more zealous to point out how pagan things are than we are to tell people about Jesus who can save them from paganism. So whatever you feel about those holidays, beloved, be more zealous about winning sinners to Christ so they won't go to hell. Can we keep the main thing the main thing? Can we be so enraptured with the glory and beauty of King Jesus and the need for sinners to hear Him that we don't get sidetracked by all these piddly little things? and be broken over sinners going to hell and use the Easter season to tell people about Christ? How about that? How about not straining out gnats like Pharisees and focusing on justice and mercy and the grander things of the law, which is Jesus, His death and resurrection, and telling people about Him? Have we done that lately? Use this season to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ, to invite people to church, to tell them about His death and resurrection. Use this season to to be evangelistic and share the only way that people can be saved from hell, which is Jesus Christ. We have no more injunction to be silent. I listened to this uh, testimony uh, that John Piper gave. It it was a long time ago. This was back in the 80s, and he, he shared it in a sermon and he just talked about how, how terrified he was to share the gospel with his neighbor. And he, his first step was to begin to pray for his neighbor every day. He began to pray for his neighbor, that his neighbor would be saved. And, 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 and he uh, prayed that God would give him courage to go and share the gospel with his neighbor. And he bought a book about the gospel. And he, he finally got up enough courage to go to his neighbor and give them the book. And he kept praying for the neighbor. And finally, he, he, he called the neighbor to discuss the book, but the neighbor didn't answer. So he sort of felt he was off the hook. But he, he kept praying and being convicted that he wasn't being a very good evangelist. But he, 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 he kept praying and, and thinking and crying out to God. And finally, he called the neighbor and got in touch with him and scheduled a time to go meet with him. And he was able to go and ask the neighbor and just say why Jesus was precious to him. And that's what really gave him the, the, the courage finally to go and share Christ with his neighbor is he wrote down, why do I love Jesus? Why is Jesus precious to me? And that's what compelled him then to go and share. Jesus is so precious. It's not a guilt trip by a preacher. But just think about why Jesus is precious to you and how much you would want other people to know him. And, and so he went to this neighbor and Listen, Bob, whatever his name was, I, I just, I've been, praying you, I've been praying for you every day for the last year. And I, I wrote down six reasons why Jesus is precious to me and why I love him. And I, I gave you that book so that you might know him. I know you don't ag- agree with me on everything, but can I just share with you why Jesus is precious to me? And Bob had the TV on, but Bob turned the TV off at that point and said, yeah, sit down and Tell me why Jesus is precious to you. And it, it was just a, 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 an encouragement to, to go and tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to encourage us, especially in this Easter season, to, to think about using that time to share Christ with someone else in our lives. It, it could be your neighbor. It could be friends, family. It can be your mail carrier. You know, there are great books, uh, 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. You could stick a 10 or $20 bill in that book and give that to your mail carrier. Uh, g- give it to the people who pick up your trash. And bless people with the knowledge of Christ. Do you think that way? 
I want us to be a church that just thinks that way, that that's normal to get this message out. And yes, in ways that seem weird to the world. Who is this weirdo giving me a book about Jesus? Be a weirdo for Jesus. The more you do it, the more you just don't care. You just won't care. That's the weirdo that wears Jesus God shirts in the gym all the time. Every time I go to the gym at UFA, I've started to work out, try to get in better shape, and I wear a Jesus God shirt most of the time. And it opens up so many doors. I was walking out the door, and this woman saw my shirt. She started crying. She started weeping. And she shared with me some hard things going on in her life, and I was able to pray for her and and give her a book. Uh, wear crazy stuff. Thank you for my tie. Um, God uses it all. And let's be vocal about Jesus. Well, point number two, Jesus' disciples ask about the scribes saying Elijah must come. Jesus' disciples ask about the scribes saying, Elijah must come. Look at verse 10. And the disciples ask him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Well, the scribes said Elijah must come first because of Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Malachi 4, 5 through 6. I'm sure Brother Bob is going to tell us more about Malachi 4, 5, and 6 when we get to it in our Wednesday night studies. But Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, so the scribes were saying this because the Bible says it. They were experts in the law. They knew the prophets. And so the scribes are asking these questions about Elijah coming before the Messiah, which the disciples now know is Jesus. Why, why, why uh, did they say he must come first? Well, why, why do the disciples ask this question? Well, the, the three that are with Jesus have just seen Elijah so he's on their mind, right? Moses and Elijah appeared to them, and so Elijah's on their mind. And if they think that he, uh, if that, that appearance of Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, if they think that that was the Elijah coming, they may wonder why Jesus came first. You see the problem there? Jesus came first, and now Elijah's come on the mount, so the disciples are wondering, well, if, if Malachi said that Elijah would come first and then the Messiah, why did you come, Jesus, and now Elijah just appeared to us on the mount? Why, why, is, that, why is that happening? And so they could have had a chronological question in their mind. And Elijah's supposed to come back first, and he's supposed to restore all things. But to the disciples and scribes, it seems that all things are not restored. So they might be wondering, what's going on here? Things don't seem to be restored. I was helped by D.A. Carson's comment on this. He says, Elijah was expected to restore all things, to bring about a state of justice and true worship. If that were so, how could it be that the Messiah would be killed in such a restored environment? You, you see the, the problem they may have? Jesus keeps talking to them, which they don't get, about the Messiah, Jesus dying. How could he die if everything's going to be restored? That doesn't seem to add up. So again, they're, they're, they're confused. 
Carson goes, goes on. Um, Jesus had told them only a week before by the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law that he would be killed. If Jesus, as Messiah, whose Messiahship the disciples do not now doubt, in other words, they know he's the Messiah now because Peter made that confession, if, if, if the Messiah must suffer, then how could it be said that Elijah must come first and restore all things? Their confusion is not merely chronological, though that may be involved. It is their inability to find a framework in which they can believe that the Messiah could die. In other words, they're still struggling with this issue of how could the Christ die and suffer? How could the Messiah of God suffer? That's not the kind of Messiah we're expecting. And so they ask this question. Point number three, Jesus explains the coming of Elijah. Look at verses 11 through 13. Uh, Matthew 17, 11 through 13. He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. First, Jesus affirms that Elijah does come and will restore all things. Now let's think about that statement by Jesus. Some believe that Jesus is referring to another coming of Elijah later in redemptive history before the end of the age. When Jesus says Elijah does come and he will future Restore all things. Some, some believe Jesus is talking about a, a, another coming. Yes, John the Baptist is a kind of Elijah, but there's going to be another one as well in the future when he does come and restore all things before the end of history, before the end of the age, like the two witnesses in Revelation 11. If you read Revelation 11, there are two witnesses, and, and they do things like Elijah, very similar to Elijah's ministry. Craig Blomberg comments, full restoration, of course, awaits Christ's return leaving open the question whether there is yet uh, where, whether uh, there is a yet unfulfilled part of the prophecy regarding Elijah. Revelation 11, 3 through 6, in which one of the two witnesses has a miracle-working ministry closely parallel to Elijah's, suggests there may be, but is, it is not clear about how literally this text should be taken. The two witnesses could well stand for the entire witnessing community of the people of God in the last days. So Jesus may be referring here to a, another coming of Elijah. But what's very clear from the text is that Jesus is talking about a coming of Elijah that's already happened in the person of John the Baptist. Jesus declares that the prophecy about Elijah coming was fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. I've mentioned to you before, I think I even did last week, how in some biblical prophecy there, there's an initial fulfillment and then a second fulfillment, maybe even a third fulfillment. So there, there can be series of fulfillments of the same prophecy in different ages in different ways. Jesus is clearly saying that there is a fulfillment of this prophecy in Malachi that Elijah would come first in the person of John the Baptist. Verse 12, but I tell you, I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased. 
And, 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 and the disciples got this because 17.13 says, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And remember in chapter 11 of Matthew, Jesus told us this. Matthew 11, 13 through 14. Matthew eleven thirteen through 14. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Jesus tells us very plainly. One of the things, beloved, I want us to learn from this as far as biblical interpretation goes, you better be careful of taking the Bible too literally and missing Jesus Christ. I just want, you know, whatever your, your, your views are on that and eschatology and things like that, I want to warn you from this text, you better be careful of taking the Bible too literally and missing Jesus Christ. How could that happen? Well, I know literalist readers who they would read this, this, this uh, 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 prophecy of Malachi and they would not agree with Jesus. No, Jesus, Malachi said Elijah will come back first. That's John the Baptist. That's not Elijah. John the Baptist even said he wasn't Elijah when they asked him. So that's not it. I'm going to go with Jesus. I'm going to go with Jesus Christ and what he says in the way that I interpret prophecy. I just want to warn you about that. There are some beloved brothers who read the end of Ezekiel that talk about the, the, the temple being rebuilt in the last days. And if it's not literally rebuilt, then it must not be right. That, that's, that's, that's troubling to me because there's only one sacrifice. There's only one temple. His name's Jesus. And they even say that they'll start offering sacrifices again. Have you read Hebrews? Now, they'll say it's only memorial, but friends, that is dangerously close to compromising the final shed blood of Jesus as a final sacrifice for sins. Be careful. Be careful that you don't miss what Jesus teaches because of a literalistic wooden reading of Scripture that's reading the Bible how Jesus didn't mean for it to be read. And Jesus shows us that here. If you're willing to accept it, this is the Elijah. John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. What does restore all things mean? If John the Baptist fulfills this coming of Elijah, what does it mean that he restored all things? Malachi 3.1 tells us, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. John the Baptist came as the messenger of God to prepare the way for God. Isn't that amazing? To prepare the way for God. And who did he prepare the way for? Jesus. Conclusion, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And we read about John the Baptist's ministry in Luke 1. Luke 1, 13 through 17. And this helps us understand what it means that he would restore all things. But the angel said to him, so this is, this is uh, the angel declaring to Zechariah that he would have John as a son. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you shall call his name John. 
And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Ah, there's, there's one part of what it means to restore all things. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. There it is. He's not literally Elijah. John the Baptist is not literally Elijah. That's not what Jesus is saying. He comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was like Elijah. He had a ministry like Elijah. He was similar to Elijah in the way he dressed and the way he preached. And, uh, and he came in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom uh, uh, to the dis- and, and to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so this restoring of all things in the sense that John the Baptist did it is he was preparing the way for God, i.e. preparing the way for Jesus. People were repenting of their sins. He was preparing a people for God and it was the beginning, the inauguration of Jesus' ministry his death and resurrection that would lead finally to the full restoration of all things. Craig Bloomberg comments on this, the, re- the restoration he brought must thus have included his ministry of preaching and the widespread repentance to which it led. Leon Morris comments, the future he will restore indicates a future aspect of the work that prophet has inaugurated. Restore signifies a bringing back to a former state of affairs and all things shows that the restoration will be thoroughgoing. The thought is apparently that sin has corrupted and ruined the creation, but Elijah's function is to usher in the events that will, through the atoning work of Jesus, restore the pristine blessedness. And so, John the Baptist, who is the Elijah of Malachi, came to restore all things in the sense that he came to point us to Christ and to point us to Christ's finished work that through which all things would be restored. And how did Jesus do that? Let's just meditate here at the end on how Jesus would restore all things. Jesus, again, in our passage, speaks of his death and resurrection. Look at verses 9 and 12 again. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So also the Son of Man, verse 12, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Jesus again tells His disciples here that He would suffer and die and rise again. Beloved, this is the heart of any restoration that could ever happen. That Jesus would suffer, that he would die and rise again. This is the only way that you or I or anybody else can be restored to a relationship with God. I will address you who may be here this morning who are unbelievers. Have you been restored to God? Have you been restored to God through his gospel. Why, why does everything need to be restored? <laughs> because everything's broken. Everything's broken. You look, you look outside the world and you see that everything is broken. 
People being murdered in Philadelphia, people being killed, people being robbed, carjacking has happened. I was at the police district this week and they were telling me all the juveniles, all the young people are doing all these carjackings. Mob violence, drug addiction, tearing people's lives apart from drugs and alcohol, sexual immorality, uh, rampant. People bored with God. People in love with money. The heroes of our culture. Who are they? People who play games. What does that say about our culture? What does it say about a culture that pays millions of dollars to people who play games? Beloved, do you not realize that that's an indictment on our culture? What we value? The world is broken. And not only out there, look at your own heart. Look at your own heart. Look at my own heart. We are sinful people. Sinful thoughts, sinful actions, sinful deeds, sinful reactions. Friends, the Bible teaches the world is broken like this because of sin. Because of sin. It, 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 it's, 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 it's obvious to those who have eyes to see. Our world leaders give awards for Women's Day to people who are men. And people vote for and celebrate stuff like that. Rebelling against God who made man male and female. We're all broken. We're all sinful. This world is broken. This world needs restored. I need restored. How does that happen? It happens by God so loving the world that he, he gave his son. He, he sent Jesus into the world, the God-man, the perfect one. The one who didn't need restoration. The one who lived God's word and law perfectly. The one who never sinned in thought, word, or deed. Jesus Christ, our champion. Our Lord, our God. He, he didn't come like Muhammad, commanding people to be slaughtered who disrespected him. He took the spit on his face. He took the crown of thorns. He took the beatings. He took the mocking. He took the laughter when he could have destroyed everybody. He could have called legions of angels down and destroyed everybody there for disrespecting him. But he allowed himself to be disrespected. He allowed himself to be scorned, to be spit upon, to be beaten, to be laughed at. And he loved his enemies. And he died for his enemies. He gave his life. Beloved, do you not see the contrast between this prophet Muhammad and the king of glory? Jesus died for sinners. He took upon himself the wrath and curse of God. He, he took the hell that, that we deserve. He bore the punishment we deserve for our sins. He died and was buried. He was buried. They thought it was over. The Messiah's cursed. The Messiah's dead. It's over. No. No, he got up. He rose from the dead. Muhammad's dead and he's still dead. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. He rose up. 
Don't let that get old. Don't let that get old. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin, death, and hell. He's alive. He's alive. And he did that for you. He did that because he loves you. He did that for sinners. And he's calling everyone everywhere now to repent of sin, to, to see the brokenness in their own hearts and, and come to him to be restored, to be fully restored, to make you truly who he made you to be in Christ, to be restored as an image bearer fully as God made you to be. You must simply turn from your sins and believe on him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Friend, if you've not done that today, I'm inviting you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today, to trust him. And if you're a Christian here today, I'm inviting you to believe on him again and trust him again. If you want to talk about that, if you have questions, I'll be here afterwards. There are other Christians who are here that would love to speak with you. We, we want you to trust in Christ today and be saved. And these sufferings that Jesus spoke of in this text of John the Baptist, they point to the sufferings of Christ. Verse 12, But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did do him whatever they pleased. Jesus said they did to, to John the Baptist, they did to Elijah, whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Beloved, there are parallels between Elijah and John the Baptist. Both were harassed by a wicked woman. Elijah was harassed by Jezebel and John the Baptist by Herodias. They were both harassed by a weak king. Elijah by the wicked Ahab and John by the wicked Herod. One commentator states Herod and Herodias were foreshadowed in Ahab and Jezebel. But you see, the disciples struggled with, with how could Elijah, how could the Elijah, this great man loved of God, how could he be a captive, murdered prophet, a dead Elijah? John the Baptist. <laughs> Remember, John the Baptist was killed. How could, how could this be the Elijah who was to come, a man who would suffer so much like John and finally be killed? How could that be the Elijah who was to come? And they struggled with how the Messiah Jesus could be a suffering, crucified Messiah. It was hard for them to grasp that they're suffering before glory, that the cross must come before the crown, that we must go to the hill before we go to the mountain. But that's what the Bible teaches. Isaiah 53, 3, He, Jesus, was despised and forsaken of men. Psalm 118, 22, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Lane comments these verses serve as a warning that the sufferings of John and his shameful rejection do not disqualify him from fulfilling the role of Elijah, nor do Jesus' sufferings discredit him as the transcendent Son of Man. Beloved, be encouraged when you suffer for Jesus. 
You are following the way of your Savior. So often when we suffer, we ask the question, does God love me? Does God care? Beloved, did God love Elijah? Did God love Elijah? This amazing prophet of God. Think about what he suffered. Think about what Elijah went through. Did God love Elijah? Did God love John the Baptist? The greatest man born of women, Jesus said, up until that point. Did God love him? And look what he suffered. Don't, don't ask when you suffer, does God love me? Remember God loved Elijah and look what happened to him. Remember God loved John the Baptist and, and look what happened to him. He, he died alone, had his head severed from his body. And God loved John the Baptist. He formed John the Baptist in his mother's womb and made him the greatest man ever born of woman up until that time. God loved him. Did God love Jesus? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And yet, look what the father did to his own son that you and I might never be forsaken. Don't judge God's love for you by your circumstances. But hear what our brother Michael told us when we began this service. God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. James Edwards, who wrote a commentary on Mark's gospel, but he comments on this same verse from Mark's gospel, says this, that phrase must have resonated with Mark's first audience, which itself was subjected to the savageries of Nero's persecution. It resonates today with the persecuted church in various parts of the world. Whenever Christians follow Jesus on the way of the cross, they find themselves exposed to the world and vulnerable to its evil actions. The inevitable suffering that results in discipleship to Jesus is not a sign of abandonment by God, however, but of fellowship with the Son of Man who must suffer and must be rejected. Paul knew this well. He wrote in Philippians 3, 7 through 11, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings. Because like him, and become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul desired to share in the sufferings of Christ. Hebrews 13, 13 says, so let us go out to him. Let us go out to Jesus outside the camp, bearing his reproach, bearing his reproach. Are you willing to do that, beloved? Are you willing to do that to tell someone about Jesus, to bear his reproach, have someone scoff and laugh at you? 
because you try to give them a tract at the grocery store. That seems small, but we don't do it because we don't want to be reproached. We don't want to be looked down on. The more you do it, the more it becomes normal. <laughs> Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It will be worth it. The small sufferings or the great sufferings that we endure for Jesus in this life will be worth it. Only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And it's looking to Him. It's looking to Him. It's, it's thinking about why He's precious to us, why He's worthy to us, why He's beautiful to us, why we love Him. As we look to Him, that will motivate us to do this kind of go tell it on the mountain about Jesus in the right way we should do it. Christ Jesus suffered many things and final true salvation brings by rising up the King of Kings. The command to silence Jesus gave until He's raised up from the grave. For only through His death He'd save and tread upon death's killing wave. The way to life He'd clear and pave and all our condemnation wave. For though to sin we were a slave, we'd sin and lust and misbehave. Christ died and rose so God forgave. His Spirit makes us strong and brave and leads us wholly to behave since we're forevermore God's slave. The three obey, Peter, James, and John. They obey, their mouths they close. But Christ's good's words a problem pose. Until the Son of, from the dead arose, how could Christ die? This no one knows. Yet this is how God's story goes. A suffering servant, Isaiah shows. He takes God's wrath. He's crushed with blows. And through His death, evil's deposed to save us from death's wicked lows. For us, the Christ this suffering chose and let Himself be stripped of clothes. Now all our sin He does expose. By faith in Him we find repose. For He, the devil, will oppose and win the victory for all those who trust the Son. For us He rose." Scribes say Elijah must come first, but Christ is here. Was this reversed? No. Elijah's come as it was versed, and Christ must die, receive the worst. For on that tree he would be cursed, and in God's wrath be all immersed, then rise alive and death's grip burst. Earth's dreaded curse would be reversed, all broken hearts. He'd have them nursed, and for this Christ alone we thirst. To read the Bible as we should... We all must read as Jesus would. For how he reads is always good, not wrong and blind under a hood, interpreted as literal would. So read like Christ, just as you should. Then he won't be misunderstood. The cross comes first and then the crown. For all glory our kings cast down. He who is the greatest noun, the greatest of all those around. He died to win a wedding gown. So down on us, our God won't frown. For we've been lost, but now we're found. Our God raised Jesus from the ground, and now His grace towards us abounds. His love forever will astound. Christ Jesus told what was to come, commanded silence, keep it from the crowds till death is overcome. Elijah restores all things in some. John beat the true repentance drum. 
and was struck down like hated scum, as Christ would die like sheep that's dumb. Under God's wrath he would succumb, then rise to save his chosen some. Now cruel death is overcome. Christ fills with joy more than rum. He's worthy more than all income. So praise his name and to him come. Of every joy, he's the sum. Father, we pray that you would remind us of how precious Jesus is to us. Lord, we thank you that we could look to him in his word and see on the Mount of Transfiguration that he is the God-man that he has all beauty and all light and all glory and all honor and all praise, that there is no one like him. Father, we pray that you would move our hearts to believe that and treasure Jesus as we should. Father, we pray that you would help us to look at how Jesus interpreted the prophets and we would follow him in the way that he reads the Bible, not woodenly and literally, but Christly and properly and godly with a view to how Christ read the Bible. Father, we pray that we would not miss Christ where he is, that we would see him where we ought to see him. Father, we pray that we would not shy away from suffering, that we would understand that, that through suffering comes glory and that we must take up our cross and follow Jesus. Father, we pray that as the disciples so often missed things, they missed the death and resurrection when Jesus, in, in his very presence, in their very presence, told them over and over again, Lord, what are we missing? What are we missing when we come to your word and read? What, what are we missing that you're telling us over and over again? Holy Spirit, we pray, Lord, that you would show us. Show us your truth. Show us your word. Reveal yourself to us. Help us to know you as you want us to know you. Help us to get what we ought to get. Show us our sin that we ought to repent of. We, we, we want to know you more and follow you, Jesus. And so help us. Father, we pray that as we read this gospel, we would be drawn to Jesus, that we would fall more deeply in love with Jesus, that we would be head over heels, reckless abandon, in love with Jesus Christ. And that as we see him as worthy, as we see you as worthy, we would go and tell a dying world that we would be your ambassadors, that we would share this gospel. And Father, we pray that you would make it effective for the saving of souls. Father, thank you that, that right before the service, Becky Scudder asked me to pray for her and Andrea as they prepare to share the gospel with, with Golzar and Serbibi and their family. Lord, we pray for them. We pray you would give them wisdom. We pray that you would help them as they think about what to say and how to say it, that they would say it in a way that they understand. We want this family to be saved. Yes. Father, thank you for the opportunities that Michael Osborne often shares with on Wednesday night of his opportunities to share the gospel with his neighbors. Father, save his neighbors. Use their family to reach people for Jesus. Lord, thank you for these testimonies of Heidi recently of, of, of having conversations with, with the plumber about Jesus. Lord, give us conversations with our plumbers, with our electricians about Jesus. They need to be saved. We pray that you would save that plumber. Father, thank you for, for Sister Tanya uh, telling me about these opportunities she had with, with neighbors and friends to speak of Jesus. Save her neighbor. Save her friend. Father, 
Get us excited about speaking of Jesus and let us see people converted and saved. Lord, we, we want to go get some for Jesus and see people converted to Christ. Lord, use us, we pray. As we fall more deeply in love with Jesus, may we be more equipped and ready to tell others about him. And we ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.